Before we start, I want to just quickly introduce myself so that you know what, what bias I come with. Uh, my name is Brian Wilbur I am from South Africa. I've been working at Southern Adventist University for 12 years, teaching in the area of um, international business. And so, on the one hand, I'm passionate about international business. On the other hand, as a Christian, I'm passionate about sharing Christ. And often people ask, what's the overlap? Well, I hope that today you'll see where the overlap is. Um, and that's, that's where I'll try and, and focus my, my comments. Before we start, let's have a prayer and then we'll talk about the uh, seminar. Father, thank you for your presence here. We invite your Holy Spirit not only to be present, but to impress upon us the relevant uh, thoughts that you'd like us to, to ponder and uh, to impress upon us what action we can take based on, on how we are, are led by your Spirit. Provide me with the ability to clearly explain and keep us attentive. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 2000s, my family and I were um, uh, living in Indonesia, and uh, during our vacation times, we took quite a bit of time traveling uh, among the islands in the eastern part of Indonesia. And I understand Indonesia is as wide as it is from Washington, D.C. to Washington State, um, but it consists of 14,000 islands, and on the western part of, of the, uh, the nation, there is uh, a very strong Islam presence. On the eastern part, it's more mixed. Uh, Indonesia is the most populous Islamic country in the world, but its uh, population is only 85% Muslim. So, a lot of mix in the east, and more sparsely populated we noticed something that really intrigued me initially. As we visited many of the islands, we would find that the towns, the, the cities that were on the shore, were predominantly Islam. But as you moved up into the highlands, the people were predominantly Christian. Fascinating. And the more I try to look into what would result in this, it dates back to history. Indonesian islands were the Spice Islands. They were called the Spice Islands. And the Arab traders with their dhows would uh, move from, from the Arabic Peninsula and trade in the bays and the harbors of Indonesia and with time set up trading posts for spice, and were able to influence the people with the Islamic um, message. When the Christians came, Christian missionaries came several centuries later, they could make little headway in the, uh, um, on the edges of the island, 
with uh, very strong Muslim communities. And they didn't want to live in the, the hot areas down there. They'd rather move into the highlands where it was cooler. And so they moved into the highlands and, of course, had their influence in bringing Christianity to, to the people in the highlands. And so you have this bit of a dichotomy, a little bit of a, a, a two-way approach where people are predominantly Muslim in parts of the country and predominantly Christian in other parts of the country purely based on geographical reasons. That's where I got the first idea of if business trading was so successful in bringing Islam to the communities on these islands, is it possible that we today can use business as mission? And so what we want to talk a little bit about is the relationship between business and mission. We often talk about business with mission. And when we talk about business with mission, we think about having placards against the walls of every corporation stating what is their purpose, what is their vision, what is their mission, why do they exist. I don't want to talk about business with mission. We can also talk about business for mission. This is the idea that uh, the business is run to make a profit, and those profits are used to fund mission activities. I'm not interested in talking about business for mission today. I want to talk about business as mission, where the business entity itself is the mission. It has to be both business and mission together. And so in addressing business as mission, we want to talk about uh, some of these kinds of questions that, that arise. What is business as mission? Why is business as mission so important? How does it align with other business and mission initiatives and programs that we already run? And how can we as ASI members become involved in business as mission. So in, in addressing these questions, we're going to kind of look at uh, four topics, subtopics here. I first want to establish very clearly why I believe business has to be involved in mission. Secondly, I want us to look at some of the challenges that we face in fulfilling the Great Commission. Then I want to explain what business as mission is, and we'll wrap it up with making some suggestion as to how we can move forward and become involved. So starting off with uh, trying to understand our commission, let's understand the fundamental reality of life. God created this world. He created man. And he created man in his image. And because God is a relational God, he created man as a relational being. And we have four relationships. The primary relationship is with God, our Creator. We're there to glorify him, to serve him through our thoughts, 
our words, our actions, we're to experience the Father joyfully. Then we have a relationship with ourselves. We've got to recognize that as a being created in God's image, we have self-worth. That we are inherently have dignity and that we need to keep that in mind as we consider who we are. We have a relationship with other people. We have a community. And we to the love, live in, in a loving relationship with people in that community. We, we've all heard the saying, no man is an island. We, we've got to be part of that community. And then we have a relationship with the rest of creation. We're created a superior being to the rest of creation, and we're given the responsibility of stewardship over that creation. Well, that's the perfect world that was created. Sin did happen. And all of these relationships are broken. They're broken in a variety of dimensions. We lack that spiritual intimacy that we need with God. We, we put other things as higher priority. In terms of ourselves, we have pride. Or we have such a, a low self-esteem that we don't recognize ourselves as being God's image. Our relationships with others lack community. We form friendships because of what we can get out of it. And as we look at creation, we recognize that even our relationships and our role as stewards have been uh, less than, than perfect. But God has reached out to restore those relationships back to the original design. Colossians 1 says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, referring to Christ, and through Christ to reconcile Himself to all things. But more than that, He's invited us to be part of that reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's not just something Christ is doing. We're our partners. It goes on. He's also, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So how do I tie this in with business? Well, let me share what I believe. I believe that if every human being has this role of bringing about reconciliation of these relationships, I think every human entity has to be also part of it. And therefore, I see that every business entity is a reconciliation agent of God. I don't see that business is there 
to make money only. It has to be making money. It has to make a profit for sustainability. But its primary purpose is that it has to play a role as a reconciliation agent. Every nonprofit organization, every government entity, every church, every human entity that we shape has to ultimately uh, play its role in reestablishing that reconciliation. And so, with that as foundation, as that as being our commission, let's ne next look at. Um, Oh, I wanted to first share some, uh, some thoughts here from uh, E.G. White. I forgot about this. The essential lesson of uh, contented industry in, in the necessary duties of life is yet to be learned by many Christian followers. It requires more grace, more stern discipline of character to work for God in the capacity of a mechanic a merchant, a lawyer, or farmer carrying the precepts of Christianity into the ordinary business of life than to labor as an acknowledged missionary in the open field. She carries on a little later on, page 64 of um, God's Amazing Grace. Religion and business are not two separate things. They are one. Powerful statements. So how have we done to, to deal with the, the challenges that we have in, in, in uh, the world as we try to bring about the reestablishment of those original relationships? Well, we have lots to, to be proud of as a Seventh-day Adventist church. Uh, we're present in 227 countries and territories out of uh, 206 countries and 67 uh, territories. We have 18.5 million members. We open 2,500 churches annually, one about every three and a half hours. And we've added 1.1 million members just last year. But there's more to the story. Out of the total world population of uh, 6.7 billion, only one-third are Christian. Two-thirds of this world are not. But we don't want to just look at people. We want to look at people groups. The Joshua Project has identified about 16,500 people groups and they reckon that about 6,800 of those people groups have not been introduced to the gospel. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. 86% of those unreached people groups fall within the 1040 window. And you can see in the graphic what are the predominant religions within that 1040 window. 90% of our mission work is among people who have already been enriched with the gospel. Only 10% is to that 1040 window. 91% of all Christian outreach evangelism targets other Christians. We've often heard people talk about sheep stealing. 
If we look into the future, peer research has suggested that um, Christians will be able to grow at the same rate as what the world population will grow. But look at the growth rate among Muslims. Much more rapid growth is projected to um, 2050. While other faiths will, will not grow quite as fast. If we look at our mission funding, 87% of our money is going to where people are already Christian. Another 12% is for work among people who have not accepted Christ, but are living in areas where Christianity is prominent. Only 1% of our mission funding is going to unreached, unevangelized people. Now, this is reality. Uh, without passing judgment, look at our own list of projects we're going to fund during this um, uh, conference. Much of it is aimed at reaching people who have already been exposed to Christian message. 60% of the unreached people groups live in the countries that are close to North American missionaries. And there are some 86 countries where missionaries, Western missionaries, are restricted or even prohibited. A second challenge that we face is that um, much of the world's population, 54%, have moved into urban centers. And we anticipate that that will increase to some 66% over the next 35 years. Mega cities are emerging. These are cities with 10 million or more inhabitants. Back in 1990, there were 10 of these cities. Today, there are some 28 of these cities. And by 2030, in 15 years' time, this will be some 41 mega cities in the world. And if we look where these are located, you'll notice a big overlap between the 1040 window, the countries that are closed, and where those megacities are. One of the approaches that we've used to enter into countries where are traditionally closed to, to uh, missionaries is to use NGOs. But these seven countries, just in the last year, have put up legislation to make it more difficult for NGOs to operate in those countries. Comment by The Economist just a couple of months ago, hostility to NGOs is not new, nor is it unique to Asia, but it's getting more intense and pervasive in that region, including among democracies. Tighter regulations is leading to a clampdown on outfits that governments dislike. So we're we're seeing that our traditional ways of, of trying to reach out, the doors are closing. We have to look for new approaches to get into these areas where we can't send missionaries and where we can't send humanitarian assistance anymore. A couple of comments and questions. I'm sorry, what is an NGO? 
non-government organization, a non-profit organization, a, the types of organizations that, we, that help people, yes. For Adventists, it is ADRA. That's an example, but, but there, are, there are many. Some of them are, have religious roots uh, or, or uh, affiliations. Others do not. Many times NGOs are seen as representing a political agenda. CIA or something along those lines. So we have a number of uh, challenges. We have too few people, too few resources that are being focused on unreached peoples. We have urban centers exploding with population. And our traditional avenues of using NGOs is no longer necessary the, the easiest way. So how are we going to meet the contextual challenges of furthering God's kingdom? Well, there's probably multiple answers. We could have frontier missions. We can have centers of influence like we've seen uh, developed over the past few years in, in the MENA region, MENA, Middle East, North Africa region. We've seen the ideas of having Waldensian students, sponsoring students to go and study at universities within the 1040 window as a means of uh, developing friendships and sharing the gospel through that. We certainly have radio and TV which are means of trying to, to get there. And the internet um, is, a, is a boundaryless arena for us to share the gospel. But is it possible that business as mission is also a response? Keep in mind that we're looking for an approach that targets the whole being the spiritual, the physical needs, the psychological needs. We're looking for an approach that focuses on unreached peoples, particularly within the 1040 window. We're looking for an approach that is active in urban centers. We're looking for an approach that is welcomed by authorities. Every country wants to grow its economy great jobs for its people, have profitable entities that can pay taxes, that can link up onto the global uh, trade. They welcome business. And an approach that will add financial resources. They will not draw on the shrinking base of financial resources that we see for mission. Something that will touch virtually every person on the face of the planet. Everybody is involved in business. You have to buy food. You have to engage in business to live. We're looking for an approach that builds flesh and blood relationships. Using God, uh, Christ's method of mingling with men. Establishing those relationships. Modeling what um, Christianity is.
If you're working with people eight hours a day, they get to see who you are. How do you handle stress? How do you handle things when they go bad? They get to know who you really are. And we can model the gospel in real-life settings. I want to suggest that business's mission addresses all of those key points as an approach to share the gospel in, to unreached peoples. It's not an approach to be used everywhere. It's what I would refer to as a niche approach, as part of a, a multi-pronged approach. It could be on the front line initially, but there will be many other approaches that we could also use. Our biblical model for business's mission is the story of Aquila and Priscilla. Sorry, I missed that comment. Paul was a job taker. He was a job taker. He went and took a job from Priscilla and Aquila. But Aquila and Priscilla were the job makers. They went out and they created the business in Corinth. So they came from Rome and started the business there. And we know from um, reading in the Acts that uh, they later moved to Syria and then on to um, Turkey. But they used business as a means of having an influence in the community and they were creating jobs for other people. They were entrepreneurs. Whereas Paul was a missionary, he sustained himself by taking jobs at different places. And so we're going to make a little distinction between tent making and business's mission. Tent making is the idea that you take a job in Dubai and have um, an influence in your workplace versus somebody going and creating a business in Kazakhstan, becoming an entrepreneur, employing people, and using business as a platform for mission. Others who use the same model include the Waldensian missionaries. From the great controversy... The Spirit of Christ is a missionary spirit. The very first impulse of the renewed heart is to bring others also to the Savior. Such was the spirit of the Waldensian missionaries. I don't know how to pronounce that word, so I'll substitute it. Okay. <clears throat> With English as my second language, excuse me, but I'm going to substitute. <laughs> They felt that God required more of them than merely to preserve the truth and its purity in, its own, in their own churches. That a solemn responsibility rested upon them to let their light shine forth to those who were in darkness. By the mighty power of God's word, they sought to break the bondage which Rome had imposed. The Valdensian ministers were trained as missionaries. Everyone who expected to enter the ministry 
first requ required first to gain an experience as an evangelist. Each was to serve three years in some mission field before taking charge of a church at home. To have made known the object of their mission would have ensured its defeat. Therefore, they carefully concealed their real character. Every minister possessed a knowledge of some trade or profession, and the missionaries prosecuted their work under cover of secular calling. Usually they chose that of merchant or peddler. They carried silks, jewelry, and other articles at that time not easily purchasable, save at distant marts, and they were welcomed as merchants where they would have been spurned as missionaries. All the while, their hearts were uplifted to God for wisdom to present a treasure more precious than gold or gems. And whenever the opportunity presented itself, they would share the scriptures with their clients and customers. Using business as mission is not a new idea. We may have forgotten about it. I'll share with you the story of what's uh, happened in um, Namibia among the Himba people. Some of you may, may know the uh, Petersons who spent some 15 years as uh, Adventist frontier missionaries among the Himba people, trying to understand their customs, trying to find ways to reach the, uh, the people and, and to make converts. Unfortunately, with very little success, if any. Not aware of a single baptism among the Himba people. Really struggled. In 2014, one of the Himba chiefs needed to have a well dug at his uh, village. So he asked around if there was anybody that could uh, do the work. Well, somebody referred him to Karoli, an Uvambu person. It's from a different tribe. And um, after negotiation, they set up a verbal contract, and Karoli started uh, doing the work. When Friday arrived, as a courtesy, he informed the chief that he would not be working the next day. And the chief wanted to know why. An opportunity to explain and to share. Um, Karoli did not work on Sabbath, was back on Sunday, continued with his work. Time came for Friday. He again informed the chief he would not be working. And the chief was observing very carefully what was happening and how Karoli was doing his work. Towards the end of the, uh, the work, he asked uh, Karoli to share more with him. Within the next couple of months, that chief and several of the members of that village are going to be baptized. Business on the forefront of mission. So let's define business as mission. It's a for-profit commercial business venture that is Christian-led, intentionally 
devoted to being used as an instrument in God's mission to the world, and is operated in a cross-cultural environment, either domestically or internationally. So let's, let's unpack that just a little bit. Cross-cultural. Some of you may recall the um, uh, Christina's Kitchen interview that we had on Wednesday evening. And um, I listened with, with, with great interest because she was explaining, bam, business mission. Here was a group of people that were culturally quite different. Here was a group of people that they had spent five or more years becoming part of a community. It was incarnational. They live in that community, try and become part of them to understand them. And then they started using business as a means of reaching more of the people in that community. It's domestic. It's within uh, the eastern part of uh, Kentucky. It doesn't have to be international. Of course, we need to seriously look at the 1040 window, and I will probably emphasize that part more. But we have to recognize it can be within a cross-cultural context. We have multiple places in, the, in, in our own country here, inner city areas, where you go into, and it feels like you're in a different planet. Uh, I love taking students on tours. And one of the places I tour with students is New York City. I've got this figured out to a T already. There's a certain subway line I take from um, part of upper part of, of New, New York, uh, Manhattan. And on a particular station, we pop out from underneath, and every sign you see is in Chinese. It's durian and Peking duck and everything, uh, Chinese. And it's as if you've moved from one country to another country by a subway ride. And uh, it's always fun for me to watch the students' expressions as they try and get accustomed to, is this America? Um, so we have, we have many of these communities, these, these uh, uh, cultural enclaves that we have maybe not been able to reach. But there is also multiple uh, people groups in the 1040 window. It's long term. We're not just looking here at... Um, a six-year mission term. We're looking at decades. We're looking at a lifetime. In fact, in some cases, I think it may even be multi-generational. We have to learn the language. We need to understand the customs. We need to build credibility. Every group of people who see outsiders come are going to ask the question, who are these outsiders? 
What is their agenda? Why are they here? Are they here to exploit us? Are they here to spy on us? What is their agenda? And it takes years to figure that agenda out because there will always be this bias against foreigners. And so it has to be long-term. It has to be holistic. Christ's life was, was a holistic mission. He wanted to take the whole gospel to the whole man, to the whole world. It has to deal with the spiritual needs of people, the emotional needs of people, the uh, physical needs, the psychological needs. Um, just, just think what it means to be poor. Many of the societies that we need to reach, there are many people in poverty. And an interesting book to read is by Cobert and, and Fickert on uh, helping without hurting. And they indicate that many people's definition of poverty is an economic definition. But when they interview the people in poverty, they find that their definition is really a psychological definition. It's this idea that we're not worthy to be part of. And so by providing jobs, providing economic and um, growth in a uh, a economic context system, we're able to provide people with more than just physical needs, economic needs. We actually get them to feel better. And isn't that part of the, the holistic approach? It has to be incarnational. We, we can't just have the idea of, well, we can go there for a, a few weeks and try and make a change. It has to be something that it takes over time where we are with the people, that they can see that we are like insiders. We work alongside them as equals, and we're there to help them. It has to be contextually appropriate. It has to be harmonious with the existing uh, cultural context, but it also has to be in harmony with the Bible so that it can be accepted by, um, uh, that we can be accepted and the message that we give is accepted by the people there. And it has to be a real ministry to meet people's needs. Now recognize that this is going to take place at, at two levels. We're going to minister to people that we reach through our business. So we are going to have influence over our workforce. We have influence on their families. We have influence on our customers, on our suppliers. If we're borrowing money from the bank, we have an influence there. So anything that the business entity itself has an influence on, that's one level of uh, ministry. A second level is the community. We can engage the community at multiple ways to have them recognize that we are a business that does things differently. Now, some of the characteristics 
of a business's mission is that uh, we've already talked about it being a holistic mission, but it is done with a kingdom perspective. And what we mean by that is that we don't look at business as a means of making our profit. We see business as a means of bringing about that reconciliation we talked about earlier. It must be a real business. You have to be able to make a profit. People are going to ask serious questions if they can't see that you're likely to make a profit. This is not to be a facade that we use so that we can gain a visa into a country. This has to be a real business. And we have to, at the same time, be involved in real mission. Because our definition said this is an intentional. This isn't just, well, I'll go and start a business there. This has to be intentional. It's got this idea of having multiple bottom lines. I've got to have the bottom line of a profit. I need to have the bottom line of being uh, ecologically, uh, being a good steward of, of, of the ecology. I have to have the bottom line of, of helping the community. I need to have a bottom line for our ministry. So it has m- multiple bottom lines to, to consider. It comes in all shapes and sizes. It can be a small business like Christina's Kitchen. It can be a large multinational corporation like SMIC. I'll illustrate that shortly to you. It, it can be something that is starting up an industry. It could be just a simple retailing outlet. Some of the, oh, I think I missed one point here. It's different than um, a number of uh, Christian-based ministries that we we run into. You may have um, run into a number of workplace ministries that operate. Uh, Anybody familiar with uh, Christ at Work, which is a a network of Christian business people? we have another group that call themselves His Business, H-I-S, His Business Limited. But there's a number of these workplace ministries where Christian people are coming together for fellowship and support as they try to use their businesses um, as a means of bringing about change. It's also different than tent making. We made that point a little earlier. This is about job making, not about job taking. It is different than business formation. It's not about making money so we can give money and to support missions. The entity itself is a mission. So some of the uh, impacts that um, business's mission can have and let me just see what my time is here. I want to make sure I... We have another 30 minutes, is that correct? I'm about right. Good. So we have another 30 minutes. It has the obvious impact of the economic stimulus. We create jobs. 
We, we'd be able to improve living standards. We uh, become part of the economic multiplier effect so that uh, there is economic growth and, and economic prosperity with, within a community. We pay fair wages. We're not trying to get by with any minimum. Remember, we are modeling Christianity. And, and when I talk about modeling Christianity, I want you to think what the experience is for people in many of the 1040 window countries. So many times, and we just had it recently, I was in China, and um, we were visiting a, 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 a university where they have a museum of, um, of ethnic minority uh, clothing. And there were a few English-speaking Chinese students that uh, took us through the exhibits. And in our conversations, they were starting to talk about uh, United States being a Christian country. It must be so wonderful to him to live in a Christian country. And we started asking them, what do you mean? Well, you know, everybody says that the United States is a Christian country, so everything that we see from the United States must be Christian, including everything that comes from Hollywood. That's their image of Christianity. So when they talk about Christians being infidels, they're right. Because the image that's been cemented in their thinking is quite different than what we have. And so when we talk about modeling Christianity, we have a huge task to set right the record. And so we have to go in as a business entity there to pay fair wages. We, we cannot be seen to be exploiting. It has community transformation impact. We're modeling Christ. Our working conditions that we offer our employees. Um, the professional development that we offer our workers. The, uh, the modeling that we do when we face difficulties. Keep in mind that you're not going to necessarily have a complete team of Christians making decisions in that business. You could have some of your senior leadership team. Could be people from the local country that are not Christian, but are not necessarily opposed to Christians. And so, you'll be modeling the opportunity for them to see what, how Christians behave when things become stressful, when deadlines need to be met. It has a universal development dimension. It's not just something that applies to the 1040 window. We have many of our inner city situations where it can also be relevant. And it is a strategic mission. We've got to be able to share the gospel, and the salvation that Jesus Christ brings to a world that is hurting. Many of you have um, 
may have come across a little book by um, Philip Saman, Christ's Method Alone. If you have not, it's really worth reading. And he bases his whole book on this quote from Ministry of Healing. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and won their confidence and then bade them follow me. What a recipe for a business's mission endeavor. Mingle with men. Show people that you, you're there t- to, to do good for them. That you have sympathy. You win their trust. And then you can share the gospel. Richard Chung worked for um, Texas Instruments for, for some 30 years. A, a Taiwanese-American. He founded SMIC back in 2000 and based it in Shanghai, China. Um, by 2008, it had become the largest chip maker in um, China and the number three chip maker in the world. Uh, uh, foundry of, of semiconductors in the world. They had s- several facilities in China, not just in Shanghai. And when he was asked why did he choose to bring his business to China, he said, we were called to China to share God's love. And in about 2011, they sold the company off. It's, it's now a public company. It doesn't quite have the same Christian leadership and the same overarching business mission objectives. But they used this company to establish multiple churches. And at one stage, it was estimated that about 1,000 of his 12,000 employees had become Christian. When asked... Isn't it problematic that you should run a overtly, is overt is right, being quite active, overtly Christian uh, business in China? His response was, there's no conflict between the party's goals and what Christians do. We're contributing to economic reforms. There are other business people in China that do exactly the same. We have a Korean Adventist who who ran a business in Beijing uh, to make uh, metal tanks. Um, He's also left recently. Um, Richard Chung is not an Adventist, by the way. He's he's, he's just Christian. Pardon? Yeah. We have have very few, much fewer um, Adventist... um, Business as missionary, business as mission missionaries, than what I, I observe from from other faiths. Um, it seems like um, this is something that other faiths have been much quicker to to um, take up. But 
uh, it works. It's, it's something that has been very effective. Now, in an attempt to try and uh, illustrate uh, another way of understanding business missions, I want to try and uh, develop a little topography. And we start off with two dimensions. The dimension of economic independence and the dimension of uh, gospel intentionality. And we look at um, NGOs and religious-based humanitarian organizations and workers, you'll find that they are very dependent on getting money from donors. So they're on the dependent side here. And they're on the low to medium range in terms of intentionality to, to share the gospel. Now, there will be exceptions. I'm kind of generalizing here to get a, get a feel. Christian companies are independent, but Christian companies are not necessarily intentional. And then we have uh, Christian workers, and that's not showing up very clearly over there <clears throat> on the left-hand side. This could be our missionaries. And having been in the mission field myself for some 13 years, <clears throat> I can tell you that <clears throat> there are people that are very intentional with their mission uh, outreach. And there are others who um, are quite happy to see it as a job, as an expatriate job that they perform in another country and are very low on in gospel sharing intentionality. Marketplace ministries are somewhat independent and they range in terms of how intentional they are in sharing the gospel and then when we talk about tent makers, well, we have a whole range of different types of tent makers. Starting off over here with uh, T1, tent makers 1, these are people that are hired within the United States or their own country. They are then sent to another country. They operate as a Christian worker in that country, but their primary objective of being in that country is to fulfill their job requirements. And they are just modeling Christianity. So it's not very intentional. T2 is somebody who's actually undertaken some missionary training. And when they are sent abroad for their company, they are intentional. They actually have mission training and a mission plan in spreading the gospel. Then Maker 3 has missionary training and business training. And they use the, the job to access a group of people um, but they are often um, part-time or they, they also represent the ascending mission organization. And that's why we see them moving a little bit more to the dependent because sometimes they are subsidized by ascending church. So they may have a job that's 50% employment 50% mission. Tent Banker 4 are pe people who work for uh, international nonprofit organizations, NGOs, that uh, specifically uh, have a humanitarian agenda. And Tent Banker 5, up in the right, left, left corner, are uh, more traditional missionaries who use business as a cover to get a visa 
into a country. We sometimes refer to these as the job fakers. They don't have a real business job. They're faking it. And I have issues with that personally because I think that that portrays uh, dishonesty. And when we're trying to model Christ, um, I, I don't think that that would be appropriate. But, but there are people that, that choose to use that method. And so they're very intentional, but they're very dependent. Even though they're supposed to work for ABC Trading Company, um, they're actually sponsored by ABC Church. And then uh, tent maker six are the spouses of uh, tent makers who are going there and, and will get involved in missionary work. And I kind of put them in the center because, yes, they're independent, but they also kind of dependent on, on the spouse to, to support their, their themselves financially. Then let's move on. Um, we have marketplace Christians, people who are active in the marketplace. They're very intentional about it, but they're independent. And if you've run into David Kim, I think he's presenting sometime tonight, tomorrow. He, he is an example of a marketplace Christian that is very intentional and very active in sharing the gospel in his workplace. And then we have business as mission, where we are completely independent financially as a business, but we're very intentional. Now, up in this top right-hand corner, I want to expound that a little bit more, and so I want to look at two more dimensions. Location, being either a home culture or a cross-cultural context, and what is the relationship to your job? Is, are you a job taker or a job maker? So, tent makers are job takers, working in a cross-cultural context. Marketplace Christians in their home country taking a job. Marketplace ministries. Sometimes these people are actually CEOs. They make jobs. But they can also be people who are job takers working in their home country. Kingdom professionals. Well, we find them all over the... They are at home. They're abroad. They're job takers they job makers. Businesses' mission, these are situations in organizations that make jobs and are working across cultural. So it kind of gives you an idea of, this is a very specific niche for businesses' mission. This isn't for every situation. And if you think of the impact it will have on your family and on your life, not everybody is likely to sign up for this type of approach. But I think it is important for us to, to recognize that we need to encourage entrepreneurs to be able to take it up. Let's briefly uh, look at um, some of the challenges. And I'm going to be, be very brief on, on this because I, I need to... Uh, take care of a few more things before our time is up. It has, we start off by trying to find a business opportunity. 
as well as a mission opportunity. Recognize that we're going to be running a business. So we've got to find a market opportunity, a good market size, where we can run a unique business so that we can have competitive advantage within that context. It has to be financially viable. This has to be 100% business. So you think business, it has to be business. But we've got to look at this business opportunity and try and overlap it also with a mission opportunity. Where are we able to go and reach people that have not been reached by the, um, the gospel? We need to put together a mission-minded business team, a team that has multiple different skills. You're going to need to have people who have experience in starting an enterprise to, to wrap up, ramp up the business, to exit the business. You need entrepreneurs that, that know how to, to run that type of arrangement. You need to have people who um, have different disciplines so that when it comes to decision-making, they're able to, to give different perspectives. But they also have to be mission-minded. They have to have a very strong spiritual um, experience with Christ and have, keep that alive. We need to deal with overcoming the liability of foreigners. When you go into another country, you, um, you lack understanding of the way that the political system and the business system and the uh, legal system runs. How do you go about promoting in that market? How do you collect your debts? Now, we know how it operates in the U.S. It could be quite different in another country. So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of learning that needs to take place. Um, you don't have the contacts. You don't have the network of people that you can call on to give you advice. You're a foreigner. And you're coming with a disadvantage, with having a bias against you because you're a foreigner. So there's, there's real obstacles in overcoming that liability of foreigners. Another challenge is to develop a support and advisory network. We need people who are lawyers, accountants, technical experts, government officials, that can provide you with guidance. So you need to develop that network. Again, that's something that will take time. But you also need to have a team of people at home that can provide you with prayer support. This is not something that we can go out on alone. If, if you understand how lonely it gets, when you're going into a country where you may be the only Christian, You're very dependent on a home support system. They can provide you um, regular contact that you can just share your frustrations with, that, uh, that's there that, that you can rely on to, to give you support. And then there's the, the adjustments for the family and the expatriates, um, the worker themselves. You need to understand language. You need to know how to shop. You need to get accustomed to what uh, kind of recreational opportunities they are. You need to learn to, to enjoy the food. Um, 
all of these adjustments that, that it really can be a challenge. And then we've got to recognize that just as we see in, in 1 Peter that we're all part of a priesthood, there is no hierarchy of calling. When we get to heaven, it's not the missionaries that get to go in first, followed by the pastors, followed by the doctors and nurses and the teachers, and maybe the last people that will get in as the prophet-seeking business people. There's no hierarchy like that. We're all part of the priesthood. In the same way, every type of outreach program and organization is doing the same work. Business's mission is not some special group of people that are going to be going into the kingdom first, followed by missionaries, followed by NGOs, etc. We're all part of the same team. We need a multi-pronged approach. And that's an important mindset to, to maintain so that people don't um, get, get skewed ideas. Share with you a story from Uzbekistan. Um, two U.S. families had um, undergone missionary training and had worked in Tajikistan, Tajikistan, for um, for several years. But um, their um, their agenda was discovered, and they were put out of the country. Um, and because of their experience as, as serial entrepreneurs, their mission training, their experience in a, a Muslim country, they decided, after some prayer, to move to Uzbekistan. And um, did not quite know what they were going to do. They had been involved in business's mission previously. So they moved into this country and they started looking for business opportunity. Uh, it's kind of the hard way to go, but that's what, the, what happened in this particular case. After some months of looking around, they identified a business opportunity. All the eggs that were being sold in Uzbekistan were being imported from Russia after it was removed from their um, supermarket shelves in Russia. In other words, they were outdated. They were old. Um, and so they figured that if there was no poultry industry, maybe that would be a, a place to start. So they basically developed the poultry industry in Uzbekistan. They um, started off with bringing in chicks. They started uh, developing uh, a formula for uh, chicken feed. They brought in equipment. They then did training of, um, of how to run a poultry um, business four local people, and they actually started uh, these small little poultry farms and getting lots of people involved, and then set up a distribution network so that they would become the wholesaler and distributor of, of eggs. So it really developing the whole poultry industry from, from scratch. The eggs that came from Russia were white eggs, white-shelled eggs. They were able to um, fine-tune their formula for the chicken feed so that they were able to produce cream-colored eggs 
and be able to distinguish their eggs from, from the imported eggs. And they start marketing it as a, a more nutritious egg. Um, and so if you, if you know anything about poultry, if, if you don't give chickens the, the proper feed, they just don't lay enough eggs. So people have to keep buying your feed, which means that they wanted to buy their feed because they could get a premium price for the cream-colored eggs. And as a result, they were able to, to establish a, a pretty uh, profitable business. And they used the training as a means of sharing the gospel. They brought these farmers in on a regular basis to, to train them in new ideas, sharing new, new approaches, um, telling them about what was happening in the industry. And this became a, a network, a community of, of the poultry industry. And it was led by a group of Christians who were using it as a platform to share Christ. So, another interesting example of where business's mission has worked well. No, not Adventist. Where can we as ASI members go with uh, the concept of uh, business's mission? Well, I'd love to be able to see a dozen or more people from, from this audience say, I'm an entrepreneur, I want to go. It's unlikely, but there may be some people here. And that would be, be something that, that uh, certainly we could do. We certainly can encourage it, and I'm very active in encouraging it uh, among our students. I, I teach international business. You can see how it fits in. Uh, try and get students to say, go. I try to get them to, to, to be intentional about thinking along those lines. But probably one of the best areas that I think it's going to be easiest for us to, to get involved in is to start thinking of ourselves as possible angel investors. Many of us have investments in um, mutual funds or stocks or other types of investments. Is it possible that we could put up together a fund where we can provide financial investment money available for people who are interested in going. Many times these people will not have sufficient funds to, to be able to start out a business. We could add a, a new dimension to being an angel investor, which is the technical term being used in, in business for venture capitalists. So we could be angel investors here from a, a new dimension. But if, if, if we could recognize that we would need to be patient investors. We would need to be people who, who expect a return because this is an investment. But it doesn't have to be a 10% return. We may be quite happy with 3 or 4%. But we do expect a return and we may be willing to wait, recognizing it will take time for new ventures to really take root. Now, if, if you're an entrepreneur and you've looked at venture capital, you know that these people are asking 50 to 60% return. Now, if, if, we, if we can get a venture capitalist to, to accept anything less than that, it, it's a miracle. But why not be patient investors? 
recognizing that our return is not just a financial return, but there's also a mission return. So then you are talking about an IAM, investing as a mission. <laughs> not a business as a mission, but an investor as a mission. I guess that's, uh, that, that's an idea I hadn't thought of, but yes, that would be one way of stating it. Um, and, and let me share with you, let's see my, how my time is going here, my time is up, so let me share with you just one possibility here. This, this is an idea. Two months ago, I ran into uh, Dennis Lee. He's an entrepreneur from uh, Shanghai, China. He, he ran an, a business in South Carolina, bought, bought out uh, an old um, factory that uh, was going to be closed, so he got it pretty cheap, he turned it around, made it a huge success, and then sold it off to a, to a U.S. Um, investor again. Um, China is a unique situation. His children are getting to a stage where they're needing to go to school, and he's saying, I don't want to send them to government school. Actually, I say his child, not his children. Some of you may be aware, in China they have a one-child policy. Now, think about it. Two parents have one child that marries another child and has a grandchild. This third-generation child has six adults that has all their hopes for their legacy encapsulated in one person. Now, there are all social dimensions about interacting with others that we could talk about. But the amount of attention, the amount of hope that these adults place in the single child is just enormous. So they want the best education for that child, to give them the best opportunity in a country that has 1.4 billion people, that has enormous competition for the positions that are available. The education system is also an education system that is godless. There is no religion in there. And it's based on route learning. Big groups. I've been to these schools and I walked through uh, past the classrooms and you just hear the whole classroom singing this uh, recitation, reciting things. So what if we had... A holding corporation start international schools, English medium, which will provide a real advantage for those young kids, where we have no connection with the church. We don't profess to be Christian, but we bring in biblical principles as part of the curriculum. There's no relationship... So they can't think that this is proselytization, which is against the law in China. Um, and we'll be able to reach hundreds of kids. What if this holding corporation could have 100 schools? It will take a large amount of money to invest. Of course you will start out with one school. Of course. But I'm thinking beyond the next two years, I'm thinking 20 years down the road, if we had 100 schools, just think of the impact we could have 
in building the kingdom of God in that country. Could be. So in conclusion, we reminded ourselves that our calling is to be partners with God, with God to bring about a re-transformation of the relationships that God originally created us with. And we noticed that there are areas of this world where we have not had much reach, particularly in the 1040 window. And we realized that one approach to, to reach these people could be through business as mission. And as we look forward, we need to consider us, ourselves taking an opportunity to become entrepreneurs in a business as mission venture, or possibly becoming investors in, a business, uh, uh, in, in such an entity. Thank you for your attention. Our time is up, but I, I will be happy to, to address any questions that you may have, either as a, as a group or individually. Thank you very much for being present here. I appreciate your attention, and I wish you a, a wonderful blessing during the rest of our uh, conference here at um, Spokane. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.